As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Keith Law, welcome to episode 42 of the Keith Law Show. It is the final episode we're going to record in 2020. I'm going to do something a little different this week. Uh, after, I'm going to take a bunch of your questions. People ask some baseball questions on Twitter. I answer a bunch of those. Then I'm going to speak with Ron Charles. He's the book critic for the Washington Post. And we're going to talk about some of the books, the best books he's read this year, some of which I've also read, other recommendations of his, and some of the changes we're seeing in the publishing industry. I am obviously a published author. I have two books out, Smart Baseball and The Inside Game, both of which are available now, The Inside Game in hardcover, Smart Baseball in paperback. And I'm very interested in the changes to the industry as an author, but also as just an avid reader too, uh, particularly a fiction. I prefer to read fiction over all else. And Ron and I will talk uh, quite a bit about these changes in the publishing industry and some of the best fiction reads of the year. So before I get to my interview with Ron Charles, I... I Put out a call on Twitter for some baseball questions. Wanted to fire through a bunch of these as we head into the holidays. I'm assuming we're going to have a little lull in baseball news anyway. So want to get through as many of these as I can in about 10 minutes or so. So we'll do this lightning style. <clears throat> First question, uh, do you think a team from above 4,000 feet elevation will be able to compete for the World Series? And uh, talking about how teams seem to be shying away from minor league partner teams at high elevation. I think it's a pretty significant challenge. I, I think it can be done. Obviously, the Rockies did get to the World Series once. And I think part of why the Rockies haven't been as competitive recently has been maybe more of a philosophical issue that they've chosen to spend their money in different ways, ways that have not worked out. That said, you will almost never see major league teams choose to have affiliates at high elevation because it is a huge problem for developing pitching. And that's never going to change. And if that means it's an additional problem for the Rockies because they play at elevation and don't get to have their, their own players, their minor league players play at elevation as much... That's just going to be an added layer to the challenge. Uh, as a Phillies fans, most of my baseball questions are just, why? Does Dombrowski offer hope or are the systemic issues so entrenched that the Phillies are always going to Phillies? Uh, I'm on board with the Dombrowski hiring. I think he's the kind of guy they need right now. They want to win. They have peak Bryce Harper. They have peak Arenola. I'd argue they probably have peak Zach Wheeler and a couple other pretty good players. They should probably be all in right now. But this is... And I'm, Copying a little bit from Joe Sheehan here, who wrote this in his newsletter, and he's been on the podcast before too. This is not 
the Red Sox that Dombrowski inherited. He has a tougher challenge here with the Phillies. The major league roster is more flawed. He does not have young, emerging, cheap superstars on the roster to the degree that the Red Sox did. And the farm system doesn't quite have the assets that the Red Sox did. So I think Dombrowski will do really well. I like the hire quite a bit, but I don't know that this is going to be sort of just add Dombrowski and poof, instant World Series contender. Uh, With the reduction of minor league levels, do I believe fewer high school players will be drafted? No, because we are seeing uh, major league teams like the Orioles just said they're going to add another Gulf Coast League team. Major league teams don't want to get rid of players in the system. But what you might see is more of the dreaded two-year rookie ball guy who gets drafted, spends that summer in the complex league, Gulf Coast or Arizona League, comes back the next year, spends another summer there before moving out to full season ball. I don't know that that's great. It's not great for the kids, and I don't know that it's great for them developmentally either. But that's what we're going to see. Uh, A couple of people have asked me about Chris Young in Texas. I I wish I had thoughts to offer, but I don't know a lot about his executive side history. Um, I know he comes highly regarded. He's supposed to be very smart. I know he's very tall. But I cannot tell you what sort of executive he's going to be because we just don't have that kind of information as it worked on the team side, uh, like, say, Jared Porter has, who's now the new general manager of the Mets. I would love my take on Renfro to the Sox. I, to be honest, I didn't even think it was worth writing up. He all, all he does is hit lefties and plays pretty good defense in a corner. But he is so bad against right-handed pitching. It's something like a 268 lifetime OBP against righties, and that's not gotten any better. So I'm I'm a little befuddled on a team like the Red Sox using their last 40-man spot on a player like that. Uh, you're the Rangers GM. Would you trade Joey Gallo? And what would the likely haul be? I, I probably probably would not this winter. Because I think there are too many players who are gallo-ish on the market, and that probably doesn't help you. I might be more willing to explore that trade in the middle of the season when somebody says, we need a power bat, left-handed power bat, Gallo's got more power than anybody in baseball, we'll give up something for him now. As opposed to the glut of players like that you can find in free agency in most off-seasons. Why can't Atlanta get Ozuna back? Are they stuck with Riley and Camargo in left field and third base? Um, I think they can. I just don't think they'll spend. I think Ozuna should get a pretty substantial deal, and Atlanta's ownership apparently doesn't want to spend like that. Uh, why can't baseball decide on the NLDH rule? What is the holdup? My guess, I apologize, I have not asked anybody on the commissioners or union side about this particular question because I've just sort of taken the attitude, well, it is what it is. We'll just eventually we'll get an answer. But that uh, owners typically don't like the DH because they have to spend more money on those players, and the union likes the DH because it's more pretty good paying jobs, often for players towards the ends of their careers. Uh, where will Real Mudo sign? I wish I knew answers like that. The Nationals? That would surprise me. I get the sense that the Nationals are more in line to cut payroll than to increase. I do think the Mets are, um, are were a very likely destination until they signed James McCann. If you'd asked me a week ago, I would have said the Mets were probably the most likely team to sign Real Mudo. Now you just take them out of it. Uh, if the Phillies are still willing to spend, boy, would it make a lot of sense for them to re-sign him. They do not have another catcher close anywhere close to the majors. They're going to have to go address yet another hole if they end up letting him go um, because they get outbid by somebody else. Uh, James McCann, good move, bad move. Not a great move. I have a write-up pending. By the time this podcast is posted, that write-up should actually be up for subscribers to The Athletic. Do I like Dahl at 3 million more or less than Renfro at 3-1? Dahl, all day long. I will take the injury risk. Much higher ceiling. Better overall player. Better defender, too, because I think Dahl can actually handle center, whereas Renfro can't. 
How often do I cook using a sous vide device? Not as often as I should, but I did bust it out a week or so ago to make chicken thighs and did not regret it. Do I believe the slow pace of the MLB offseason hurts the league? Yes, but I don't know what you can do about it. The reason other leagues have the faster paced offseason where everything happens on day one is because they have salary caps. I don't want a salary cap in baseball. All that does is take money away from the best players and puts it in the pockets of the owners. The owners are already rich enough. The players are the product. The players should get paid fairly. How badly will the miners' contraction hurt baseball? Uh, Maybe not as badly as you think, given the way that you phrase that question. I get the sense you think it's really bad. And I think it's more moderately bad. There are some pros to it. There are some cons to it. I think they've eliminated too many teams. I wish they'd kept one level between the complex leagues and full season ball for the very reason I just mentioned in that previous answer. I see another question here. Amy, hi, very long time reader there. How would I structure the minor leagues? I think I sort of just answered that a little bit. How far off is the current MLB plan that the lack of a level for players who are not ready for full season ball, but who've already played a year in the complexes, that's the major developmental problem. Everything else is probably fine, and I don't have a huge issue with them trying to make the leagues more geographically concentrated to reduce travel. Except for Bowling Green. Bowling Green is sort of this weird little island that doesn't fit in any league, and I think they're shoehorning it into the East Coast League that is going to come up at high A, and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, Let's see. Is it possible the Angels trade for Snell and sign Bauer? I'm not sure they have the prospects to beat what I would expect to be a fair market offer for Snell. Now, I don't know exactly what teams are going to pay for Snell or what the Rays are demanding, but I feel like the Angels are probably a little light on that. Not having a season, a minor league season in 2020 probably hurt them more because they had a lot of players who had potential upside, but who needed to go out and do it. And I don't think Joe Adele really helped his trade status, uh, trade value, because he came up and struggled. And maybe he didn't belong in the majors, but he he... He looked very not ready in 2020, and that's certainly not helping your trade status or trade value, I would say. Uh, Do I know anything about the MLB partner leagues that their team, this this reader, Bob, his minor league team, lost its affiliation? Now they're going to one of these partner leagues. So my guess, without knowing which team you're talking about, is that they're going to be an independent team. It's just going to be like what the St. Paul Saints were before they just became an affiliated team. It'll be independent baseball. They'll have some connection to the majors so that if a player signs there, he's not in an organization, but it's supposed to be a little easier for that player to then get signed or have his rights purchased and sign a pro contract. It'll probably still be a pretty good product on the field. It's going to be harder for those teams to be financially viable because now they're paying the players. And I don't know that the caliber of play is going to be as good because I think a lot of players are going to see... um, a lot of those players are going to see that as a non-viable path to the majors. And that's going to be probably the biggest problem the majors, Major League Baseball is going to have. Um, that we're going to lose some talent somewhere here. We have fewer jobs available and we have fewer paths for those players to get to the majors. And I think ultimately that's going to hurt our ability to get uh, to attract all of the best talent. We'll still get a lot of good players. We'll still get most of, good, most of the good players. But I worry that we're going to lose some guys who'll look and say, I don't have enough of a shot to get to the big leagues. I'll go do something else. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So my guest today, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today's episode. My guest is Ron Charles. He writes about books and publishing for the Washington Post. And he's also a member of the National Book Critics Circle. He's one of the main book reviewers for the Washington Post. And you can find him on Twitter at Ron Charles. Ron, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we get into some of the specific books, I don't know if you wanted to maybe have a sentence or two of a thought on a just sort of appreciation of John le Carre. I know you and I have talked to you even. Yeah, what a loss. What a loss. I mean, this is a guy who took the spy novel, you know, and made it into literature. Uh, and then you think of all the spin-offs and the movies and all the other authors that he influenced and the films and the TV shows. This is a major, this is like Agatha Christie. Yes. Yeah, I feel like um, my I've read a few of his books. My father was a huge fan, is a huge fan of LeCarrie's books. And he has talked about the Alec Guinness adaptation of Tinker Tailor forever. And I've still never seen it because it's not on... Netflix or Amazon, like I would pay actual money. I'm going to have to end up buying the DVDs at some point just to check it off so I can talk to my dad about it. So let's talk yeah. about some some books from 2020. I know you and your colleagues at The Post have done a lot of your content on, on sort of the best books of 2020. I wanted to start with a few that I've also read. And um, we'll start with Piranesi, which is the second novel from Susanna Clark, who wrote Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which I absolutely loved. Piranesi was, uh, you know, in my opinion, also great but completely unexpected. It was, to me, it was so unlike the first novel. It was like reading something by an author whose work I'd never encountered before. What, what did you think of the book? I totally agree. If she had released that under somebody else's name, nobody would have connected <laughs> the two, I don't think. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Jonathan Strange, Mr. Norrell, that is a huge Victorian novel you know, of uh, history. I think it's Napoleonic War, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and magic. Uh, and this, uh, this novel, uh, Peronese, is a little quiet novel. You know, it's just, and it's, you don't know exactly what's going on, and it's not, it doesn't take place in history at all. It seems to take place out of history in a way. Uh, it's a very strange little book and masterful in its, uh, in its ability to transport you to some other place that is totally different. And it's not, I'm still not sure exactly what was going on in that book, but I was just captivated by it. I wondered if there's, and I have no idea if she's going to play in a sequel. Obviously, she's had health issues. It took a while to get this book done. But yeah. whereas the first book, had an ending. I won't spoil, but Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell ends. And as much as I'd love to go back to that world with her, I could understand her saying, nope, it's done. I capped off the story. Piranesi seemed like uh, the, it, the possibility, there were many possibilities for her to revisit that and further explain or not, if she chose yeah. not to explain the mystery of it, I'd be along for whatever the ride was. It's very odd to have an author publish two great books that far apart. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
it's a risk commercially too because the audience gets older it drifts away it forgets you know you think of some of these authors that bring out a book every 18 months they build the audience book by book but to wait years and years like that it's a challenge for a publisher to come back and say hey remember this book that made such an impression on you in your 20s uh here's another one you'll love <laughs> when when her first book came out i was not a parent and now i am the parent of a teenager so that gives you gives readers, I guess, some sense of how long yes. we waited for that second yeah. book. Did you see the TV show? I loved it. Absolutely I loved watch it. That. I it's really watch good. That. It's and it is free on something, one of the streaming okay. services. And other than it's Eddie Marsan, I think is his name, who plays Mr. Norell. It's not many people you'd recognize, oh. but it's per. I thought it was absolutely wonderful, and I was glad. You know, as you said, it's it's a thousand page book. You're not condensing that to a two hour <laughs> movie. I'm no. sure someone thought about trying, yeah, but I instead it's a, on it. it's about five or six hours worth, and it's it feels just right. I was I was extremely happy with it. As somebody who's very hard on adaptations, I love books and I read a lot of books and I remember a lot of the details in the books because that's what I love about so many of them. And then when they cut fifty percent of it or more out of a movie, I'm like, well, that stunk. <laughs> but this one did not. This one was really great. And do you remember that it came out in two colored editions? There was the white edition and the black yes. edition and the special red edition, which I never I never even saw. I don't know that one. Yes. I have the <laughs> I have a black paperback somewhere in the house. It's one of the few I've despite knowing I'll probably never reread it, I kept it. You know, thinking yeah, maybe my did. daughter will read it someday. Right. Another book I really enjoyed from this summer and that has encouraged me to go back and read more of this author's past catalog was Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell, which oh, yeah. And I'm still learning a bit of his work. I'd read Cloud Atlas before. But Utopia Avenue struck me as fairly straightforward for him, with obviously a lot of allusions to his previous work, many of which I know I missed. That's why I'm going back. But uh, a really fascinating, funny, often very funny and um, very evocative look at a fictional rock band from the 60s in England that really just kind of put me very firmly in the time and place he was trying, I think he was trying to evoke. I totally agree. I felt like I was there. I felt like I was back in England at that time. I could, I, you know, I was never a cool person. Uh, those kind of <laughs> musicians were totally outside of my realm of company, but I felt like I really got to know them. What I wondered about that book was toward the end, as it became more fantastical and more magical and more connected to the previous books, I wondered if it was leaving, uh, you know, uninitiated readers behind. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Like, what? How do you feel about that? And when you're, because your your job is to evaluate books. Essentially, you're reviewing books. What do you do with a book like that? That kind of it stands on its own, but it but it also doesn't because of that assumption. I know. I just I just made that warning in the book. I said, you know, you can enjoy this in my review. I said you can enjoy this for what it is, but if you know the other books, particularly in order, and you've read them recently enough to remember the details, it will mean so much more. So I'm not really sure that book does stand on its own. Yeah, that was especially the part. I won't ruin it, but the part I know about that's the, the trouble. Yeah, that's the problem, right? There was one chapter in particular. I'll just say that, and I'm sure you know what it is. People who've read the book will know. Where suddenly it was like, oh, I'm in a, I'm in a whole universe here. This is not. I'm no longer just in London as I was previously. Because right. it didn't seem magical, right? I mean, no. hundreds of pages. There's no magic at all. No, nope. uh, there was no like, hint. What? What yes. was that? He seems, uh, what does he seem like he's on the autism spectrum maybe? or That was my guess was that Mitchell, yeah. who's obviously done work with, right. the, you know, has that with the, I believe in Japan, a teenager with, with a severe case with severe autism. Right. Um, I thought, well, maybe that's what he's doing here. And then obviously it's something 
very different that was sort of out of nowhere. And I yeah. I had to stop and think, wait, don't I know this before? <laughs> and then, because, you know, I, I assume you do the same thing. You're reading a book. Like, I don't start Googling things about the book until I'm done because I don't want to ruin it for myself. Right. Yes. And so afterwards, I looked and it's like, oh, here's 15 other things I missed that yeah. connected to other books. And it's like, all right, fine. I'll go back and read them and I'll go read <laughs> I like your work, David Mitchell. I will read the rest of your books. Yeah, I can it see is, it. They are worth reading, and they are all great in their own way. But they do connect. Well, in a weird way, like uh, Louise Erdrich's books connect. Mm -hmm. They stand on their own, but as you read more and more of them, you start to see uh, the same kind of, even the same characters repeat. Uh, you get to know the landscape that she's created. So they work alone, but they work better together. That reminds me of another book uh, that was on my list that I haven't read yet, Uh Marilyn Robinson went back to her Gilead series. I guess it was a trilogy. Now it's a tetralogy. I yep. hope I have the words right. Glad you thought of that word. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> Jack is the so it's the fourth book in the series. I read. I loved Housekeeping, her debut novel, which was separate. And then the Gilead books to me, they're sort of diminishing returns. The first one was great. The second one was really good. The third one, I was, I might be done with this family in this town uh, so i'm curious your feelings if you've read jack yet or or just what your thought is on how she's approaching continuing to go back to the well for more stories from the same little group of people right it's funny you've mentioned her because like uh, Susanna clark here's an author who comes out with a great book and then waits many years to come out with her next book gilead which was one of my remains one of my favorite novels ever i think it's absolutely gorgeous and such a beautiful exploration of uh the Midwest and faith in America and just a lot of huge big themes. It's perfectly written. Uh, I also like the next book very much. I thought the third book, which is about uh, the woman who comes into that family, mm -hmm. is bravely experimental and, and really challenging and interesting. But Jack, I like less and less the more I think about it. The further I get away from that book, the more I think, wait a minute. It's a book essentially about racism, but was there ever a whiter book about racism? <sighs> You know, and I lived in St. Louis for 35 years. I didn't recognize a single place. <laughs> mm. it, it is kind of a weird, placeless setting she's created there. And, you know, Jack, who's supposedly this unemployed alcoholic, a thief, I mean, he's definitely Marilyn Robinson's kind of homeless person. Mm -hmm. you know? He's mm -hmm. so witty. He knows everything about literature. He can talk about Calvinist theology. I mean, that it's just, he's a completely artificial kind of person in that book. It just didn't. I wasn't comfortable with him. That's disappointing because I do love her writing. I agree with you. I think she's brilliant. I mean, yes. she's one of the greatest living writers in the world. Uh, but that book's really problematic. And I think my review was bad and weak and spineless. Uh, and if I could go back, I would be harder on it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's okay. It's, nobody ever remembers anything they read on the internet. So That's what my wife tells yes. me. Don't worry, Ron. Don't. No one's reading you. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a book this year that I actually found because of your review. I had read Graham Swift's uh, Booker Prize winning book, Last Orders, um, which I liked. It was sort of a little bit of an unconventional structure and there were cultural differences, but I just I got into the story and got into the characters very quickly. And you loved his book uh, that came out, I think, in the fall of this year, Here We Are, which kind of like as you were describing Pyrenees, it's just a little slim yeah. wafer of a book, but really, really well done. It really is, because he's one of those master stylists. He just does so much with so little. Uh, this book uh, has its element of magic, too, in a way, right? I mean, what what did happen to that guy? Uh, <laughs> I won't say anything more, mm -hmm. but it's about these these young people 
uh, this trio really of or yeah, trio of lovers, but they don't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they're uh, involved in a theater on a, a seaside resort, and uh, their love triangle spins out of control in a, in a tragic way. Uh, yeah, I think he's a gorgeous writer. He can be much more devastating in this book. I thought what I liked about this book is that it wasn't. It didn't leave me, you know, completely ruined. Uh, I, th I thought it was, I thought it was a nice sort of gem. It, it, it was. I love a book, and this is, a, I feel like, a very hard thing for authors to pull off. But it's essentially three characters. That's yeah. it. You know, there's a, a few other people flit in and out, but not many, even at that. No. And so you're pinning as an author. I've, I've never, I've not written fiction. I've only written nonfiction. But I feel like as an author, you are pinning everything on creating three characters or whatever your number is who are credible and compelling and it could be sympathetic i guess they could be antipathetic too just in one way you create that emotional reaction in the reader and if you miss on one of those right it could probably ruin the book and he in that book especially i think even more so than in last orders he created three and that was just right in each one of them on their own was strong enough and compelling enough to carry their portions of the book. And you feel like you really know them. I mean, it's, it, well, I've got it right here. Let me see. It's only, uh, it's not 200 pages. It's not long. even 200 pages. No. Very strong uh, selling point for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think for a lot of people nowadays. <laughs> uh, and to think that he creates a whole backstory for these characters, uh, it's it's kind of magical the way great authors can do that. Yeah, it's it's. I find it very impressive, again, as somebody who's not written fiction. Maybe someday I, I, I will. I don't know that I have that. There is a that is a, a special talent that those folks have. Yeah. Um, the last book that uh, specific book that I want to talk about, I'll ask you for some of your other favorites, but of books that I've read that you reviewed, I loved Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven. In fact, oh, the, other, yeah. the other day on Twitter, when somebody asked me for some recommendations of books to give as gifts, I didn't mention that, and several people said, "What about Station Eleven? I said, "I love that book." Maybe not in the middle of a pandemic. That's just me. <laughs> but she came out with another book this year called The Glass Hotel, which I was dying to get. Um, I ended up getting from the Silver Unicorn, which is a little bookstore in Acton, Massachusetts. I happen to know one of the folks who runs it. And for about three quarters of the book, I was in. And again, won't spoil anything. I did not like how she ended it. I did not like how she tied it up. Uh, I thought there were a couple of things just sort of amiss with the ending. Whereas I thought the ending to Station Eleven, she really kind of, she stuck it. She stuck the landing that time. But, but I felt less so this time. She has her thumb right on the zeitgeist. I don't know how she does it. I mean, Station Eleven, of course, was a bestseller when it came out. Then it became a bestseller again during this new pandemic. And you think about this new, uh, The Glass Hotel. Here's a book about a financial crisis. I think it published, you know, hours before the stock market crashed in March. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, but it's not about that. Of course, it's about Bernie. It's, it's inspired by Bernie Madoff and the, and the whole uh, pyramid scheme. Uh, and what I liked about that book is that it made me feel like what it must have been like to be ripped off by Bernie, mm -hmm. what it was like to be suckered in, to be flattered, uh, to realize that you were invested too deep before you could get out. I thought I think she is a real uh, trickster, uh, and my sympathies were constantly flying around in that book, trying to figure out you know who I liked and who was good and who was not good. Turns out not many people were good in right. that book. <laughs> 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 but yeah, she uh, she's really something. The young woman who's her name's escaping because I read it a, a little while ago. But the young woman who becomes the Bernie Madoff stand-ins paramour 
in the book. I don't remember if they actually get married or not, but she's as close to a central character as, as there is in that book, even though, as right. you said, the attention of the camera sort of flits around quite a bit. But what I liked about her was that she was a fairly complex character, and the idea of somebody who was very much benefiting from the fraud while completely unaware of what was going on, and then, of course, one day that just the whole rug is pulled out from under her creates, for me at least, complicated sympathies. Yes. How much do I actually uh, feel for her, and how much you know? How much is there some Schadenfreude involved here too? Where it's ah, well, you didn't deserve all that wealth anyway. And, and I That's, like the complexity she created. I totally that scene where she begins to realize that it all comes crumbling down, and the other employees are all panicking and disappearing, and or giving mm -hmm. state's evidence. Yeah, I love the way an author can instill in you that kind of panic, can let you participate in that kind of a plot without going to jail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the one other thing I'll say about that book, and obviously I, it, it's hard for me because I didn't like the ending yet. There were many things I did like about the book was the hotel itself was so well drawn, yes. so well depicted. I, like, yeah. I don't even know if that's a real hotel. It made me think of a different hotel that I've read about that's in Newfoundland that's really isolated <laughs> like that. But it's just, I could picture it. I absolutely felt like I was sitting in that lobby at one point. Right. And for me, I, I don't know how to describe it, but I, I, when I read fiction especially, put me in the place. Let me create the picture. Give me the details required to create the picture in my mind, and I will be far more engrossed in the book. And I thought she sure. did that really well. Yeah. She did that well in no. both books. Exactly. Yeah. She And she's still very young. She's got mm -hmm. decades of great books ahead of her. That's wonderful. Yes. So what are some other favorites of yours from 2020 that I haven't mentioned uh, that maybe I could recommend that I should read myself or that other readers should check out? Uh, my favorite book this year is probably uh, Ayad Akhtar's book, Homeland Elegies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's on our list, on the Times list. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, mm -hmm. uh, but he's a novelist too. And this is a book about himself and his relationship to his father, a Pakistani immigrant who's a huge Trump supporter. Uh, the author is not a huge Trump supporter. And so this oh. has always been a real tension between them. And the book is about what it, this father-son relationship at a time when the country becomes really shrill and really angry and really divided, and how does their relationship uh, change over time. It becomes this enormous investigation of American politics and uh, economics. There's a lot of economic theory in, a, in this book, and for a novel, that's really unusual. Uh, you learn a lot about monopolies and uh, tax systems, uh, but also a lot about what it means to be an immigrant or uh, someone who has darker skin in a country that becomes really violently racist. I think it's just a remarkable book. He's associated with the National Book Critics Circle, if I remember correctly. Uh, he is now uh, the president of Penn, I think. Oh, okay. Oh, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was one of those groups that right. I'd seen. Um, and that was actually, I had not heard of him or of the book previous to that, because I think in part because he, he's done more. It's plays. Uh, plays, yeah. exactly. Plays, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, it sounds like I should definitely add that one to my list. Yeah, I really think that's a great book, but it's a heavy book. I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, Graham Swift's novel where you sort of spend an afternoon lost somewhere. It's, uh, it's, a, little bit of, it's a little bit of work, mm -hmm. but in the best way. I think it pays off. I'm, I'm okay with work. It does depend. I mean, you read for yeah, job, it is obviously. my work. <laughs> I read for leisure, and so I I tend to split up my to to read shelf depending on it's like oh I have a trip coming you know you know in the pre pandemic world where I actually traveled for my job it's like that's a good book for a plane 
that's a good book that's <laughs> going to take some time, but I'll be in Arizona for a few days and I'll just, you know, have not much else to do. And therefore I will read more. So maybe it's more in right. that, that category, not a like read this before bed every night to relax no, sort of book. This is not that kind of a book. No. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, you wrote mm, a couple of weeks ago about the possibility, the, the pending merger between Penguin, Random House and Simon and Schuster. And, I'd like you to talk about that. I want to, the piece was great. And right. talk about what that means maybe for readers or for authors where you, you ultimately said this, this could be a pretty bad thing for the marketplace. Yeah. And I've been, continued to talk to people about it on both sides. Uh, they both are quite sure they're right. And I'm becoming a little fuzzy headed about the whole thing. But <laughs> uh, basically, we've got five big publishers in this country and two of them, uh, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, are about to merge. So we're only going to have four big publishers left in this country. I think that's bad for authors and bookstores and readers. Uh, because I think larger corporations are become increasingly less risk averse. And I think for authors, it's bad because they have fewer publishers to bid on their works. Mm -hmm. uh, and for bookstores, I think it's bad because they're going to be working with fewer distributors. And that means they're more you know, uh, beholden to those, those forces. So I think all around, it's just not a good deal for Americans. And I hope the Justice Department uh, looks into that. I have talked to Penguin Random House people uh, whom I know who are all great people. Mm -hmm. I've known them for years. Uh, and they uh, tell me that, well, you know, our imprints all bid independently. Uh, look, when Penguin and Random House got together, people said, just as you did, Ron, that it was going to be a disaster. But it's not been a disaster. We have more imprints now. We publish more books now. We're paying more for books. So, you know, you're wrong, basically. Uh, the the uh, merger does not lead to the things that you said. But I think at some point it must, right? I mean, say there were only one publisher left. Right. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, I'm still... But then I talked to uh, uh, an expert, an academic expert on mergers and acquisitions, and she tells me that the real problem is Amazon. Uh, the Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos, uh, who yes. is the chair, uh, CEO of Amazon, uh, but we operate uh, with editorial independence. Uh, she said the problem is Amazon, that Amazon uh, puts pressure on the publishers to basically get together so that they have some power against this enormous single buyer mm -hmm. and seller. And so she said the real problem is uh, they're just responding as they must in a market which is so dominated by this one giant online company. So I'm still trying to figure all this out. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Because it's As I saw your piece too, I thought back, I have an MBA that I don't use. It looks nice on the wall. It's on one, I swear it's on one of these walls somewhere here. <laughs> And I chose to do something else with my life. But they I remember a class where he spoke, spoke specifically about um, established or mature markets, which I think it's fair to say the publishing market is, yes. is fairly mature, typically can only accommodate three or four major players. Now, you may have many smaller, what he termed niche players. Um, more than that, and you would see a trend toward consolidation, but fewer than that, maybe even as few as three, you could see... Any of the things you talk about, you, you run into the risk of not just not straight price fixing, but sort of right. prices that generally rise or monopsony conditions. There's a lot of potential negatives for all the different for all the different stakeholders, for the readers, for the uh, for the authors. I didn't even think about what that could mean for independent booksellers who are under so much pressure this year. I was just gonna say that so much of the book selling industry is opaque to most readers. Mm -hmm. and, you know, they go online, they order a book, or they go to the bookstore and they buy it. But it's this really complicated system in which uh, 
bookstores used to make money by uh, Barnes and Noble paying them. I mean, uh, publishers paying Barnes and Noble to display their books better than other books, or uh, giving them credit so they can buy books, you know, and have the supply they need to sell. Uh, they're very dependent on those publishers. Their business really does depend on them in a way that I think uh, is invisible to most of us ordinary readers. I think that's true. It's, I've actually shifted. Um, I, I have a blog of my own where I have typically used the Amazon affiliate program. That's That was largely the little revenue I made from it. But if I list a book now this year, I've shifted to bookshop.org mm-hmm. just to try, you know, just for competition. And because those they direct a lot of the sales were possible to independent bookstores because it's just how else are they going to compete against this absolute behemoth of, of right. Amazon? They can exert pressure both directions, pressure on other stores and pressure on the publishers. There's a great piece uh, in England. I ah, can't remember the where it appeared, but if you look around, you'll see mm-hmm. it. Uh, bookshop dot, bookshop.org just opened in England a few weeks oh, ago. okay. And of course, everyone's happy because it's such a, you know, it's the, the knight in uh, shining white armor, right. Amazon, supposedly. But the books, some books that I said, no, no, all you're doing is training readers to go online and not to come into our store. And there was some really serious and I thought profound criticism of bookshop.org and the way it's maybe not saving booksellers after all, that we really need people in stores. We really need them to go to individual store websites and not to another mini Amazon. Uh, but I know the folks that are involved with bookshop.org. I know they are truly saintly people. <laughs> and so, uh, I, again, I'm the more I know, the less sure I am. It's very frustrating. <laughs> yes. I think I found this piece actually in New Statesman. I'm going to save that and read it later. Okay. But it's yeah. why bookshop.org is not the savior with a U, that's the it. book world needs. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. it. It's a good piece. She talked to a lot of people and it made me very uh, troubled and complicated my impression of bookshop.org. Yes. It is hard to be a heavy reader and also wait, not hard, hard, air quotes, hard, but, and to consider all there are many ethical concerns in where you buy your books and how many books you buy, where you spend your money. I get books from the library too, or I would spend easily a few thousand dollars a year on books if I did not make use of the library. So do I, right. do I buy them on Kindle because they're on sale? Well, it's, is that helping anybody? Yeah, there's. I, I do grapple with these things a lot, and then and then often I just buy the books. <laughs> well, you, you get that email, you know, a book you've always wanted is $1.99. Why, you know? Yes. Oh, no, I'm not going to buy that. I'm going to yeah. spend $30 at my independent bookseller because, uh, well, yeah. Right. I'm, I, am I that good a person? Right. I have, I will say that uh, I love the Nero Wolf novels, Rex Souts yes. novels. Uh, absolutely one of my, I, I would say guilty pleasure. I feel no guilt actually no, whatsoever. But anytime one of those pops up, I'm like, Psh, buy it, buy it, buy it, buy it. I'll spend my money on some contemporary authors and, and if it's just you know two or three dollars i'll work my way through the nero wolf collection on kindle i figure that's that's my balance at least and yet i'd be crushed if there weren't independent bookstores around oh I mean, for sure pre-pandemic they are you know that was pretty much my social life is to go hang out at these places and yeah. wander around and talk to them and see what they're displaying yeah. i mean i and for authors you know it's this whole ecosystem where they travel around and they sell 50 or 80 books at a time it would be a disaster if we lost those books and those uh, bookstores. And what it would mean is that discoverability would be gone. All you'd have is the books that Amazon or Barnes and Noble promotes. Uh, so publishers are and should be terrified that they're going to lose these. I think there are about 2,300 independent bookstores left uh, because they are, you know, that's where many, many pe- good readers find out what's out there. Yes, I would miss them terribly. When I travel, that is one of my 
the two things I particularly like to do when I travel are find a good local coffee roaster and find a good local bookstore. Use exactly. new, whatever it is. Right. That is part of the part of the pleasure slash consolation of the amount of travel I typically have to do. And if you get off the bestseller list, you go down, you know, to the books that are sort of mid-list fiction, they never appear on the bestseller list. They mm-hmm. never get promoted broadly by the big online retailers. They sell only because there are bookshops in this country. And if you don't have those bookstores, that whole band of art of literary nonfiction just withers and dies. Yes. And no, none of us wants to see that for sure. No. Yep. no. My guest today has been Ron Charles. He is the book critic for the Washington Post. Also writes about the publishing industry for them and is a member of the National Book Critic Circle. You can find Ron and links to all of his work on Twitter at Ron Charles. Ron, thank you so much for joining me. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks very much. That's all for this week's show. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support throughout the year. We will return in January with new episodes. But for now, with the holidays approaching, we're going to take a couple of weeks off. I hope many of you get the chance to do so as well. As I've been saying for many, many weeks now, please stay safe. Please wear your mask. If you're able to stay home through the holidays, uh, please do so. Obviously, the public health situation out there is pretty bad. But there's at least hope on the horizon. And I think I speak for many of you at least when I say it looks like there's a chance we'll get something like a regular baseball season next year. I'm actually feeling pretty optimistic about it for the first time in quite some time. But to get there, we kind of all have to do our part over the holidays. So I hope that all of you have a safe, happy, and healthy holiday and that you'll be back with me when we return in January.